in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights, to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my very good friend from deep in the heart of Texas, Dustin Melbarnes. How are you doing, sir? Doing great. It's an excellent day, uh, like eight straight beautiful days in a row for us here in Texas. Uh, I'm actually at my work office surrounded by greenery in the luscious hill country. Yes, and if you're from Dustin's work, he's not working. He's just at work. Clarification, yeah. And somebody who I used to work with is on the show, Dustin, Mr. DJ Bryant. How you doing, DJ? I'm doing well. How are y'all? I'm good. I'm good. It's been too long since we've had you on here. This is your fourth time, I think. Yes, that is correct. Fourth. Yeah. All right. I don't have jackets for five timers, but maybe we should have them tailored. We should get jackets for just this episode because this is a this is going to be a killer. I'm 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 so excited about this one. <laughs> All right. So, uh, DJ, just uh, generally, what's a movie that's not necessarily well regarded, but you like it? So. I think that this movie is somewhat well well regarded among a select few. It's just very unknown. I'm going to say Noises Off from 1992. It has uh, actors such as Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, Mary Lou Henner, Christopher Reeve, John Ritter, and Nicolette Sheridan, and it's hilarious. I didn't realize, John, what year what did you say this was? 1992. Okay, yeah, I... That's not even on my radar, I guess. It's it's new to me. Does it have yeah. like a cult following? Is that why you say it's really highly regarded by some people? Yeah. So typically, like it's it's um it's a very it was start off as a stage play and it's a very strenuous production and so it earned the bad rep of kind of being the actor killer or injurer not killer but injurer definitely because there's a lot of quick scene changes and there's a lot of just kind of moving parts and pieces to it. And that is what killed John Ritter. Hmm. Oh no. <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, no. No, we all know it was a clown that came back from 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> all right. Oh, it. That yes. clown. <laughs> yes. You all yes. float down here. Yes. He he yeah. is one of the people who have to deal with it. So, I could use a spinoff where Tim Curry and Bill Skarsgård go face to face. Which, which Pennywise is scarier because they're both very frightening. So Makeup to makeup. It'll always be Tim Curry for me. Dustin, how about you? What's a movie that you have enjoyed, but maybe the ratings and people say not so much? So I've actually created an entire uh, sort of movie rating system based on me liking movies that are considered poor. Is I think I think there's four categories, uh, and you can kind of be in two at once. There's good movies, there's bad movies, there's movies you love and movies you don't love. And you can certainly love a bad movie. And you can certainly not love a good movie, right? So you can pick two. And so my number one that is universally panned, uh, 3.9 on IMDb, 14% on Rotten Tomatoes, is You Got Served uh, from the early 2000s, uh, featuring uh, young Marcus Houston and Omari Granberry, also known as Omarion. Um, it's a, it's a, a world where uh, hip-hop dance groups can go uh, perform 
in a warehouse owned by Steve Harvey and uh, earn a lot of money until some white kids from the suburbs come in and trick you out of that money. And then, gosh, Lil' Kim gives an incredibly drunk performance for the whole thing. It's an incredible movie. It's also pretty bad. Interesting. One that one of my co-hosts, uh, Chad, pointed out to me at one point that uh, I shouldn't like this movie, but I was like, it's not a bad movie. And then I looked it up and apparently it does have a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics, 50 score, 50% from the audience meter. But I, I kind of like you, me and Dupree with uh, Owen Wilson. But Owen Wilson. Uh, yeah, but uh, apparently I should be ashamed of this, I've been told. So um, that's my unapologetic. I like that one. And what's the last movie you saw, DJ? Last movie I saw was actually a documentary on Netflix called Fantastic Fungi from 2019. Ooh, that sounds interesting as well. Dustin, what about you? Who's the fun guy? <laughs> this guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you got served, obviously. No, I, I also watched uh, Spider-Man 2. Uh, I saw the trailer for the new Spider-Man coming out, saw that they teased uh, Doc Ock. So I was like, I can get into some Sam Raimi shenanigans. So I rewatched Spider-Man 2. All right. I am guessing you don't feel compelled to go on to the spot. Rewatch Spider-Man 3, though. I w- I'll rewatch that one. I'm not ashamed of those, like, 2000, 2005 movies that, that weren't, you know, weren't incredible. Another one that would fit into a movie that's panned, but I like it. Got it. And I'm, I'm doing a little bit of homework for my 2011 movies countdown. When we count down the top 10 movies of 2011 coming up here not too far down the line so i went back and picked up jay edgar never saw it at the time kind of just meant to but i'd heard some kind of press saying it was a little slow long and boring and not quite as eventful as you might think even though it's a fine performance by dicaprio and i find that it's long slow boring and even though it's a fine performance from dicaprio but anyway today we are on to what dustin 1986 is a little shop of horrors that's right. It was made for $25 million. It grosses $38.7 million. It places at 25 on the box office. Three Amigos comes in ahead of it at 24 and behind it is About Last Night. The number one movie from 1986 is Top Gun, and I'm constantly ribbed at by other people on this show that I think Top Gun is overrated, and then I'm quickly booed. So um, you can boo me if you need to, but I think Top Gun's overrated. Well, is it all? Is it overrated, or is it a movie that's universally like loved that you don't like? Does it fit into my two system? Like, do you just not like it, or do you also feel like it's overrated? Um, both, but both of those. It's on the both line between. Those. Yeah, so it's I just think it's overrated. On. Yeah, it's catching on, I think DJ. <laughs> I will say that, like for Top Gun and me, it is sentimental in that whenever I go would go to the dentist as a kid, they had this like goggle device that they would put over your eyes and show you a movie and top gun was like one of four options so that was usually my dentist's experience watching top gun wow that's awesome i've never heard of this well we're watching a movie today that you definitely (laughs) don't want to watch in a dentist chair oh king of segues (laughs) Uh, Little Shop of Horrors gets a 7.0 on IMDb and the critics of Rotten Tomatoes love it they give it a 90% and the audience scores at uh, 79% it gets an Academy Award nomination two of them actually for Best Visual Effects and Best Original Song and it gets two Golden Globe nominations for Best Comedy or Musical and Best Original Score it doesn't take home any hardware uh, but it's uh, generally well praised and successful at the box office so DJ 
Tell us, what is your background with Little Shop of Horrors? When was the first time you saw it? And what's it like coming back to it now? Yeah, sure. So I probably would have seen this back in the early 2000s as I was going through my kind of musical theater kind of awakening in high school, middle school and high school. Um, I feel like it was probably on HBO or something at the time, maybe TBS. Um, and it was one of those things that you could just kind of pick it up and watch it at any point, And it was always enjoyable. And now going back to it, I love it even more. Yeah, it has great rewatch value. So do you feel like it's getting better with time or just kind of like right in there? I 100% think so. We'll talk about the special effects later, but I think those have held up well through time. Like it's not too cheesy or hokey and it looks it looks beautiful today as well as it probably did back then. Yeah. Dustin, you eagerly picked this off of, uh, you know, our, our guests gave us three options and uh, you shut it back and forth down quickly and said, we're doing a little shop of horrors. I'm, I'm, I detect that you're a big fan of this one. Of our, of our host group, I'm the one that's seen the fewest movies. And so when one of my favorites just comes along, uh, I, have to, I have to jump on it. Uh, I, I saw this, I actually owned the, a VHS like cassette of this. I had very few movies growing up. Um, I had uh, Groundhog Day, I had Fern Gully, I had Little Nemo's Adventures in Slumberland. And I had. And you told us you have an empty case of Lucky Number Eleven. Yeah, I, I got that in like high school though. I still have that case and no DVD in it. But uh, I had this this cassette, and so I had it had been a part of my life since at least middle school. Um, DJ, I, I was thinking about this, and I'm wondering if this was part of like a like a phase or a time in your life because. When I've been introduced to musicals, I will love to listen to it or I will like if there's a movie version or a stage production, like I, I, I get into it. But I really just get into that one for a time. I don't like I didn't go through a period of like, oh, now I need to watch Rent and now I need to look into Hairspray. And now I need like I, I it didn't like evolve into like a period for me. Like this was just a movie that I grew up with, loved, can sing every song. Um, you know, I know all the musical cues. And, but it didn't come from like performing it myself. Uh, did you ever perform it? No, I didn't actually. And I wish I, I wish I had been given the opportunity to do so. For me, like I have an obsessive personality, so the umbrella was musical theater, and I would like pick out like Rent or Little Shop of Horrors or a sundry other musicals and just obsess over them for a while. Um, so this was kind of in the trajectory of those obsessions. Yeah. Was Rocky Horror Picture Show one of those? Because I know you did that one when you came on before. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And this seems like it would fit really well with that. It didn't surprise me at all. Once I got back into studying this one, I saw some similarities. And I'll mention that later. But I also saw this one in high school. And I stumbled across it on TV. And I did come in the middle of it. And it was Bill Murray in a dentist chair. And I was like, what is this with Steve Martin and Bill Murray? I need to know more. And I stuck it out through the rest of the movie. I rarely come in the middle of a movie, but I was too enamored with it right away. And so I kind of had that, like, I need to see this from the beginning later. And it took me a little while to come across it again, but I, I watched it from start to finish and I loved it. And something strange happened. I just didn't talk about it. Like, I didn't pick it up. I didn't watch it with my wife necessarily. I didn't watch it with my parents or anybody like that, and it just kind of fell off my radar. And sometimes when this happens to a movie, you um, you start to like be like, yeah, that was good. And like, it unfairly starts to fall down. So when it came up and we studied it, 
I was like, wow, I forgot how much I really enjoyed this movie. Why have I not seen this? And I mean, gosh, 15 years or something like that, probably. I mean, why has it been so long? And it really, really is good. And when you start to study how they made it, you gain even more appreciation for it. So, um, yeah, I don't think I'll be away from this one quite as long as I was then. Uh, funny thing, I watched this one actually three times preparing for this podcast. And I showed wow. it to my parents as one of them. Just uh, they were up here visiting and uh my dad's like i've actually never seen it and um he's a dentist uh so uh, i was like wow that's i'm I'm just going to caution you there's a mean dentist in here he's like yeah watch it anyway and uh they got through with it and he's like that was really funny like he had seen a stage performance of it and the stage performance is different and my dad had also seen the 1960 version of little shop of horrors and really thought it was super not remarkable and didn't have like a palette to like say, like, if that was the original, I certainly don't have a need to see the remake. And he's like, I really wasn't aware it was a musical. And he came out of there singing praises of all the funny comedians and stuff in the cast. And so um, sometimes it's one of those things where maybe I should have shared this with people more because uh, it's a people pleaser from what I can tell. It's, it's a really fun movie. And so I think it's not only holding up well i'm disappointed in myself for letting myself get so far from it i don't often say that in this podcast normally i um make a point of revisiting movies i like this much but this is one that's just really been on the shelf since high school for me and i haven't watched it since so jumping off of what you just said i too watched this three times in preparing for this because i just loved it so much again as well as i went back and saw the 1960s version which is not a musical I mean, it's very different, in my opinion, than this this version of this. It is very different, and it, it is... I actually only got through about 40 minutes, which is over half of the movie. Both movies are quite short. But uh, I didn't watch it several times, but I'll show you guys. I actually have the soundtrack, like, on my phone. Like, I, I listen to this. Yeah, like, as, as I scroll through, you know, sometimes it's just, like, pick a playlist. Sometimes it's pick an album. And uh, you never want you know, um, <clears throat> drink with me from Les Miserables to get in the way of your workout music. If I'm cleaning the house, I just put the soundtrack on and I clean away. I, I love the music. I don't, I've seen the movie probably two dozen times. Um, but I will say that, that 1960 version is funny. Like it's, it's particular humor is quick and dry. And, uh, you can see that it, it, it maintains in the 86 version that we, we watched for this show. Yeah, and we'll talk a little more about that here on the other side, but there will be spoilers that lie ahead. We won't probably spoil the 60s version too much, but we will draw some points of comparison. And uh, we will be spoiling the heck out of 1986's Little Shop Horror. So if you haven't seen it, you're going to want to pause it, watch the movie, and come back. And if you're not spoiler-verse, then stick it through and come with us. We'll be back after this. Dadu. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded movie-loving individuals like you what happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up you get the classic film jerks podcast find the classic film jerks podcast on all the major platforms 
All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There are spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Dustin, for those who haven't seen Little Shop of Horror since 1986, want to refresh people's memories. In a decade not so far from our own, <laughs> we learn about the goings-on of a community around Mushnick's Flower Shop on Skid Row. Uh, Mr. Mushnick employs sad sack Seymour Krellborn and serial bad decision maker Audrey uh, as they all work together to try to make ends meet. Uh, they float the idea that a strange and unusual plant might bring in customers, of which Seymour has recently just purchased from Chang's for $1.95. Uh, after learning that this plant can only grow if it drinks blood or eats fresh meat, a torn Krellborn has to make the difficult choice to feed the met-their-end-curiously-at-the-right-time dentist and Mr. Mushnick to the plant, named Audrey too. The plant grows and grows, and... Seymour gains um, reputable uh, fame from it. Uh, Audrey and Seymour realize that they are made for each other and fall in love, but their obstacle to escaping Skid Row is blocked by a now gargantuan, man-eating flytrap monster, which nearly devours Audrey before being electrocuted to death by Seymour. We close on a suspicious bud in the hedges of the matchbox in the suburbs, somewhere green. Yeah. Now, uh... So what are the ingredients that make this so unique and special, DJ? That's a really good question. So I'm going to bring in the 1960s version because I think, Dustin, you touched on this, where there were like nascent elements of comedy and kind of cleverness in that version that I feel was amped up on steroids. So first and foremost, the kind of the tying in of the dentist who was really just, I would say, kind of a background character in the original, but now he has more of a presence being that he's, Audrey's abusive boyfriend, um, as well as the whole musical theater aspect of things. The set's beautiful. The story is very well put together, very well told and complete. It doesn't kind of leave you kind of scratching your head, like missing anything. It's very rewarding to watch. Yeah, you're not you're not missing anything. Um, It's and sometimes it's um, like very clearly told to you, but that's fine. Uh, we've only got uh, 72 minutes to work with here. And uh, it's in that amount of time, you get everything that you need. Um, with the early version, there's some clunkiness to it, uh, at least the first 40 minutes that I saw. Uh, and, and some things that aren't as fully developed. And this movie really does a great job of very quickly giving you the things you need to understand. This, this girl's in a bad relationship. This dude is a bad dude. Uh, there, there's not much like he's funny. Steve Martin plays a great uh, Dr. Oren Scrivello DDS, but like we know he's a bad guy. Uh, we we get that Mushnick has you know he wants to make money, but he's got a moral side, uh, which I actually noticed in the the 1960s version as well. Everything that you need, the movie gives you. I think it's interesting that the content is obviously on the dark side. You're dealing with characters in depressed situations and a depressed neighborhood. And it's somehow at no point really depressing itself. It, I think the music is so vital to that. The music sounds like it's out of a 1950s or 60s sock hop. And somehow there is a sense of fun that comes from that. And that feeling of fun is accompanied with these amazing comedic performances by the actors. And it's somehow... You know, I was sitting there thinking, it's like, you know, really, this could be like Sweeney Todd. I mean, the plant viciously eats people 
and uh, the situations that they're in aren't that fun. And like little storefront, people go in and get killed. But uh, I was sitting there thinking, it's like, wow, what a separation that that makes because the nostalgia of the era that they put this in, the tipping of the hat to the B-movie horrors movies from the 50s and 60s that this comes out of and met with amazing comedic performances as well as, I have to say, there's a lot of newer, like Justin was kind of mentioning before, like Hairspray and stuff like that. Sometimes newer movies, Mamma Mia, uh, like these movies don't necessarily put emphasis on people who can sing. And they're just like, hey, what big names can we shove in this? And everybody here can sing. So that's really impressive to me. And that makes it a really unique recipe, particularly given that it comes from the 80s, because we're not seeing a lot of musicals from this era, unless I'm not thinking of something. DJ, it's like a dry spell for musicals at this era. Yeah. And the singing is also like, it is, not only is it good, it has this kind of soul-soaked kind of heartfelt pain in it as well which I think helps to balance it out. So you get the kind of the fun aspect of it, but it, it really hits you in the heart. That's a good point. That's a good point is uh, everything is, and sometimes it's the angles uh, in, involved in shooting it. Uh, it really looks like it's being belted out by uh, particularly Audrey and Seymour. Uh, with Audrey too, you do get uh, just like <clears throat> the awesome uh, voice uh, with the animatronic, and I know DJ, you mentioned that, like this. This holds up, and it certainly does. Uh, to think that a gigantic plant can sing, and it feels like it's singing. It's not like a puppet. It's not. It's not like a ventriloquism. Like it's. It feels real. There. It seems as if they're belting it out as if they're like on a stage. Uh, very, very cool thing that I like. Another reason I love this podcast is I. I already knew I loved the movie, but I didn't know that like the intimacy of their singing was something that I thoroughly enjoyed as much as I now clearly realize I do. And I think it's such an interesting um, road to take because it was a movie, as DJ pointed out, a Roger Corman directed 1960s movie. And there's some differences there. And it's not a musical at all. And I find it so unexpected that there was an off-Broadway musical production made of it. I wouldn't say that this was something that was so remarkable that, man, we got to make this into a musical. And the fact that somebody stopped and wrote music for this really feels different to me than where it had started from. And then obviously this is an adaptation of a musical production. So uh, it's really surprising. So there's layers in there. Like you have the basic characters, the man-eating plant comes from that 60s version. But then like this Greek trio of backup singers and stuff, you know, Chiffon, Crystal and Ronette, which are all three different trio women singing groups from the 60s. Yeah, that that's fun in its own right. But they introduced some of the pizzazz that you have in this movie. But this movie, sorry, this Broadway play was not set at the time period. So that was something that they came into this production and made a distinct decision that says, we're gonna make this a nostalgia piece in addition to all these things. So it's kind of interesting that it's evolved and it's a thing that's built off of another thing that's built off of another thing. But I think it's getting better as they've continued to play with that. I don't know if it's fair or not. I agree completely. I think you can definitely see how the the evolution and the layers added on have, have made for something a lot better than the original from where they began. Um, 
Also, I'm a sucker for a Greek chorus, so give me a Greek chorus any day of the year. And if they sound like they're from Motown, all the better. All the better. One of the things that I think is interesting is if you go by what's written for the musical, that the end of this is dramatically different. And you can YouTube what the original movie ending of this was, which was a faithful adaptation of that, where the plants eat Seymour and then proliferate and take over the entire United States. There's a couple of additional music numbers that are associated with this that are actually pretty good musical numbers, but they chose to not go that direction. Test audiences just didn't like it. And uh, they went back and reworked the movie before releasing it. And I know I sent both of you guys this, like the original ending. Dustin, how does that original ending feel? And did you like the decision to rework it? Or do you kind of wish they had stuck with that broad off-Broadway ending? Somebody had made the comments on one of those clips. And what's funny is that when I pulled up the clip you sent me, it gives you suggested videos. And all the suggested videos were like Little Shop of Horrors clips. And all of them were already previously watched. Because, of course, I've watched, I've consumed so much Little Shop of Horrors, little, like, the blooper reel, uh, different, cut, like, clips. Uh, like, even, even like, high school stage productions of, of stuff, like, I've watched. It's, like, it's, it's such a great, you know, content that I, I want more of it. But I did watch it, and um, it, it seemed like, it, one of the comments that was put was, like, wow, they put a lot of work into this. It's a shame they didn't use it. Because it, it was um, a lot of cool puppeteering, the giant Audrey 2s, um, the huge, like, I mean, obviously these are models, or I would assume that they're, they're models, you know, busting down New York City. I think there's a really cool uh, picture of, like, one of them, like, on the middle of a bridge. That's a better scene than the ending scene, uh, which is uh, on top of the Statue of Liberty. The, the one with the Audrey 2 on the bridge is, is really cool. Um, and speaking of the musical number, th- that particular one is, like... Uh, it definitely has a lot of uh, "Give Me Some Lovin." I don't know. It's a, it's like an eleven-minute alternate ending, and a lot of it is is this kind of driving driving rock music. It goes too long, um, unfortunately, including the scene of Seymour being eaten. That, that takes too long, um, and I feel like that that's maybe the only thing about it is they really they really wanted to use what Levi Stubbs is that is that the right guy's name Levi Stubbs yeah the plane they really wanted voice. to use his laugh. You know, <laughs> they really want to use that and they use it too much in that alternate ending. I think that alternate ending is fun. I don't think it's better. I like I like the, the 1986 like theatrical release version, but I, I really I really do like that alternate ending. Um, it's just like that would need to be trimmed down from 11 minutes to six minutes. I think it, they, they did such a great job of keeping the rest of the movie short, succinct, exactly what you need that adding on um you know 15% of the of the movie's runtime as just let's watch these big plant muppets destroy things unneeded just it would need to be toned down a little bit but i do li- i i like the idea of keeping it true but i i i'm kind of a sucker for you know the way things end in the 1986 version yeah and now dj there's one other ending beyond that as you mentioned the 1960s version somewhat similar but also different in its own right who wraps up this movie best? Is it the play? Is it the 60s version? Or is it the 86 version? Oh, I think I'm going to say the 86 version. And for this, I'm actually going to use Frank Oz's own kind of recollection of it. Um, he said that he learned a really pivotal lesson in this with the original ending that in a stage play, you kill the leads and they come out for a bow. In a movie, 
they don't come back, they're dead. And so you've just kind of created a lot of emotional trauma for the audience who've invested a lot into these people that they know, that they think they know, and they're now dead. So I think that the 86, the way they tied it up was done very well. I also like that the fact that we get the glimmer of the the monster story not being over yet with the ending scene. The little yeah, country too, kind of waiting in, in the front yard for them. That's such a tip of the hat to that. Again, this this movie is drenched in uh, nostalgic love for those uh, 50s and 60s chiller science fiction horror movies and having a little Audrey either known or unknown just sprouting up in the lawn in front of their suburban home it does it does fun like i mean that's what a horror movie does they crack the door open whether or not they choose to take that sequel that's another thing but it they always gonna say like you know there might be a little more mayhem still to come so i thought and the mayhem in the movie was fun like like, yeah and because the mayhem is fun yeah you you get uh to potentially play around and then you've got the very high on the keys um like piano starting again to to kind of roll into the credit music like uh oh here it goes again a, a very very fun ending with the 1986 i th- i was wondering is there a way you can have your cake and eat it too where so in the movie seymour's like knocked under a pile of bricks uh audrey two pulls the whole building down on him and you're worried that that could be the end for seymour it's not but before he rallies and electrocutes the plant in the final version I thought, wouldn't it be cool, like, if he has, like, a dream, like, like, I got hit in the head with some bricks and, like, I'm in a, like, you know, blurry stupor where he can see what happens if he doesn't stop this plant. Thus, like, it grows and he, they can keep a shortened version of this. To Dustin's point, I actually think it does go on a little bit too long. But could they have kept that, like, musical number of subsequent events where the chorus is, the Greek chorus is singing and then, like, they show some of that amazing movie footage and then he regains his he comes to his senses and says i've got to, i've got to take my last desperation and you know electrocute this plant and uh, i thought maybe there was time in the movie and with a little bit of editing of those numbers that they cut because it, it was a lot of money they cut out too i mean i believe it was an Give me a second here. I well, to answer it, your question, I think that would be cool. I, I don't think the movie is lacking in any way. But if that if they could be done to where you know maybe maybe there's some assistance being pulled out of the bricks by Audrey herself, or, or maybe there's something else. But it would need to be kept succinct. If we draw that out, then all of a sudden this this becomes it almost it, it might maybe wouldn't fit. But I I love the idea. Like it's 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 cool to like to have both, like you're saying. But I. I I don't think it's it's wanting. Yeah, I don't need an 11-minute guitar solo, which that other alternate ending does have. But like, if you cut it down to like five minutes, you, you probably keep a musical number in there that you had to lose otherwise. And then you don't waste all that budget and hard work puppeteering and stuff like that. So uh, I, I don't know. that that To me, that's a third cut that I, I we didn't get to see where you still get your happy ending, but then you get to see the plant's going king kong all over the place or uh, godzilla all over the city or maybe maybe what's going on is during uh, the only song i feel like that lasts too long and maybe the tones a lot of places mean green mother from outer space uh maybe as he's describing like maybe like during the almost spoken breakdown i, I refuse to call it a rap uh like when he's saying like 
you know, I'm from beyond, I'm from outer space. I'm from beyond the moon. I'm coming here to take over your place. Like maybe there's like just flashes of like, this is what the, the, the takeover would look like. And then like the song is still going. And then um, Seymour busts out of the, the bricks and the rubble to save the day. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And what about the romance, DJ? Do you like this nebbish character? And uh, how would you describe uh, how would you describe Audrey? That she's such an extreme character. Oh yeah, I mean, well, Ellen Green is brilliant in this role with with the voice she puts on, which I would love to imitate, but I can't. I would just embarrass myself. It's yeah. just like, you know, kind of mousy little voice. Seymour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mr. Mushnick. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can only do it a little bit. <laughs> and he's been working on it for a month. <laughs> yeah, he's been working on it for 20 years. <laughs> but you really do feel for her because, like, I mean, she, as do you, all of them, like, you do feel like that this is a, ultimately a story about people in a rough spot in life who are trying to find a way out. And what better way than to find each other and get out of it together? Like, it's kind of like, it's a it's a very happy love story. I like that it's somewhat obvious, but they both suffer from such low self-esteem that they're both holding themselves back. You know, he's got no confidence to say, like, you know, you know, why would she pick me? Which, I love characters like that. And uh, on the other hand, she's got this, like, oh, he's awesome. <laughs> which i think is so funny and a little bit atypical because normally that nebbish nerd-like character has to prove themselves or whatever it's like the, the notion of just like they have to do something to be seen but in this case she views him as a nice guy that sh she just doesn't deserve and that's something that's a little unusual and funny because they both kind of are melting over each other but then they both believe that they can't have each other and so they're both so accessible and attainable to each other. Um, it's 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 really funny. It's almost like it's like it's like French fries are like, man, I wish I could sit next to a hamburger, and the hamburger's like, ah, oh, man, I wish I could sit next to French fries. It's like you can, <laughs> you can have your hamburger and your French fries, and when they get together, it's delightful. What an analogy! I, I was about to say like, what? None none of you have ever been rejected by someone saying that like you're too good for me because that's happened to me quite a bunch. <laughs> Um, it is it is funny. I, I, a departure from the 1960 version. Cause in, the, in the 60s, he's kind of uh, like he he he's uh, he messes everything up. He slips over everything. He can't cut the uh, the flowers right. Like he he does things poorly. Whereas uh, Seymour in the 86 version is uh, uh, maybe not a genius, but at least he's capable. Uh, and he he only has time to like read about the flowers in his books, and he you know he takes the time to go to the other flower shops. Like he he is he has at least a proficiency in the job that he does. Um, he's not just like a schmo who 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 doesn't understand anything. Uh, I think that's a huge improvement, and um, I'm I'm totally into the 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 romance aspect of this movie. Now, DJ, you mentioned liking Ellen Green, but how would you feel at Cindy Lauper? been caught cast in this because she was offered the role uh casting the original stage star ellen green ended up happening but lopper wanted the part but she couldn't commit due to recording and touring schedules at the time so that we nearly got cindy lopper on this one so to further that i've allegedly heard a lot of accounts so cindy lopper being one madonna being another barbara streisand being a third um it's hard to say because they didn't get the role and i see ellen green as being the one and only true Audrey should be right now. 
Um, I mean, she all she originated the role on as the off-Broadway play, and I think she kind of proved her chops there. She's continued to perform in the role to the like to this day, and she still looks great. She sounds great. She's even referred to the the makeup and the character that she takes on now as doing drag, basically, because it, it's like all a lot of makeup, yeah, a lot of well, hair. Yeah, well, yeah, it's just she's so done up like that Long Island thing, right? It's just like hyper feminine, like Dolly Parton, Nicki Minaj esque kind of you know creature. Yeah. Creature. <laughs> she wears like yeah no you're right she like wears like blue eye makeup and um yeah she's she's a bit over the top for sure I think that's funny when uh, he when she goes I can help you shop and he goes well, I don't have very good taste in clothing not like you do <laughs> like you're right DJ she is she's uh she sticks out so much I couldn't put my finger on it at the time I was like why is that funny but you just nailed it I was like yeah there's a drag like quality to the character. Oh, I love what she's talking about the cheap, the cheap and tawdry clothes that she wears in the gutter at the, the night spot. Not nice ones like this. <laughs> Not like, nice like these. The, the nice ones and like half of her cleavage is like hanging out. I'm like the nice ones. Okay. <laughs> that that is quite the decolletage. Yeah, it's it. it there's something about it to where like, uh, 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 well, I'll use this word. I don't think it's exactly accurate, but like a bimbo character tends to be on the unlikable side. I think this is the yeah. most likable bimbo you've ever seen. Uh, or listened to or heard. And it helps that she's got the voice of an angel, even with that affectation. Um, I, I will say uh, <clears throat> I've only met one person who I've had an in-depth discussion about this movie who said that she she can't stand Ellen Green and because of it can't stand like rewatching the movie. Like, likes the story, but because she can't stand that voice. Wait, does she not like can't stand the character because she makes bad decisions and it's hard to watch? Just the voice. Just the her. voice. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, Just no, I feel... Wow, I'd, uh, so that's that's my issue. Like, I like Madonna. I like Cindy Lauper, and I hadn't heard the Barbara Streisand one. Um, I feel like these are great vocalists, and yeah, you know, they they certainly could look the part. But when it comes time to like acting in this manner, boy, I'm kind of glad we got Ellen Green because I don't think the other ones have this in their repertoire. And Ellen Green brings the singing, the acting, and this is something that I think a lot of movies should take note of. It's a really important character, and they went ahead and got the stage actress, and you fill in around that. And I think there's times, like whether it be Les Mis or something like that, where it's just like, yeah, maybe you don't put Russell Crowe in there. Maybe you get somebody who can really sing, you know? <laughs> Did that um, come out when we were in college together? Les Mis or? No. Les Mis, the, the Les Mis movie. Yeah, that came out after. I don't. I don't remember the exact timeline, but I was out of college. It was. It was like. It was like two years after, because I. It was in. I was still in Tennessee at that point. Uh, I, I said the exact same thing. Being a huge fan of that show and that soundtrack, also on my phone. Um, Russell Crowe, who I like. Uh, t- I like him. T- absolutely terrible, Javert. Yeah, like I, I mentioned, Mamma Mia earlier. I love Pierce Brosnan. He's a, he's James Bond. But you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't sing well. So no. Like no, it, it, it makes me hurt for him as well as for the movie. So get people who can sing is a big part of this. Is so. there a behind the scenes of like Rick Moranis being a great singer? Like, is there is there something about like like do we know if this was his real voice? It, I, I trust usually Russell. I trust you to to know the behind the scenes stuff like this. But I love his uh, like he has the chops, wouldn't you say? Uh, Rick Moranis has a musical career, actually. Wow. So you you can look this up if you want to, and so he does have musical ability. 
I mean, he may not be on the vocal ability of, say, an Ellen Green, but uh, as you saw witnessed in this movie, he definitely holds his own, and he's certainly not in the Russell Crowe category. <laughs> no, he's not. Uh, Steve Martin, another guy with an established musical career, and uh, his his uh, his bit parts or his his singing parts in the movie, great. Exactly, and so you put the characters who can't sing, you put you fill those with funny roles and stuff like that. So like, Bill Murray probably is not a beautiful vocalist, but it doesn't matter. He's just funny, you know. I mean, even uh, Vincent Gardina, like he doesn't have a musical number in there, so it doesn't matter whether he can sing or not. The people who can sing are put in the right seats and the music happens beautifully. And then the comedy is there to service it as well. It, to me, mm. this is really good casting. DJ, we haven't talked about this. What do we think about the villain Steve Martin's character in this one? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, he is easy to hate or dislike in terms of like his intro is perfect. Like he's talking about all the things he did as a kid Um and hearing him talk about, you know, I think poisoning guppies, bashing a cat's head in. Uh, all these terrible things. I'm like, this sounds like Dexter. Like, this is like that Dexter, the premise of Dexter. Like, here's a serial killer. Let's find a profession for you that you can use your talents innately. And hey, he's a dentist. Perfect. Great. <laughs> yeah. And he's chewing every minute of scenery he gets too. like, yeah, he's just he's just taking this one and dialing it up to 11. And you know, so much of this was his own choosing, whether it be to pull the little doll's head off in the waiting room or whether it was to flat out punch his own nurse the, assistant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or he waits by the door listening for her to come along so he can open the door and smack her in the face with the door. I, it's it's difficult to create such an abusive character and to create them for laughs. And Steve Martin is really good at walking that line. Like everything that he does is still funny. Like hitting your female, like, you know, staff, in the face sounds horrible but again you're singing it to sock hop 60s music and steve martin just has this like goofiness about him even as he's playing such an imposing character i was sitting there thinking how many people can walk this line in fact i think he actually deliberately takes a few steps over the line at times but it's steve martin and he's just doing it so ridiculously so exaggerated it's working really well i'm gonna want some gas for this <laughs> I got to tell you, I think it's scene dependent, and this is just more kudos to the entire movie, right? The, 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 his musical number, uh, with, when he's singing about his profession, is uh, comedy. Um, and then you have the scene with, um, what is his name? Arthur Denton. Um, the, um, oh, what is masochist? it? Uh, the, the, yeah, the, the masochist, I think, was actually like originally part of the, the character's name. Was, his name was just the masochist. Um, and like that is, you can see his frustration building. You can see that he he's not getting what he wants. This is a problem with uh, uh, serially violent people. Um, and then there is like the shorter scene. I think it's during "Feed Me," uh, but it, it's it's where the, the musical number isn't focused on him. You see Audrey and Doctor Orange Gravello DDS get back from dinner or something, and he he's yelling at her to open the door faster. Uh, calling her a scatterbrain for falling off the motorcycle and like it's only like 20 seconds but that's when you get a full-on you know abuse like you full a full-on slap sorry as if verbal abuse is not abuse but full physical abuse you see it seymour sees it the guy sure looks like plant food to me uh like that scene is different than the rest of the comedy and that's like the over the line that was necessary to be like 
All right, yeah, we love Steve Martin. It's funny. Remember the arrow through the head? But this guy's a bad guy. They no, do you're a right. job letting you know. You're right. They make you hate him. And you have to hate him. Otherwise, what Seymour does seems more repugnant. Even though somehow dragging a dead body down a fire escape and then chopping it up with an axe and stuff like that, you're just like, oh, it's Rick Moranis. This is fun. <laughs> Even though it's, like, it's exactly what Sweeney Todd ends up doing. You're just like, ah, this is kind of mean. I'm not sure I'm into this. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, yeah, d- definitely different tones and and different things you like about those those productions or those movies. I've seen the the, the um, Johnny Depp and um, who's the the female lead in that one? Helena Bonham Carter. Of course, yeah. How, how do you forget, right? Um, but I, I've seen that one, a, you know, a couple times, uh, and it's it's got its own charm. But this is this is on its own pedestal, on its own level of uh, of of just being able to to hit these marks um, in such a, 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 like a, a tight 72. How is this the only movie on screen performance with Steve Martin and Bill Murray? Like, is it just that they're both, yeah, I was going to say, is it just that they're both such powerhouses? They never landed next to each other. Like they're both like the engine that drives comedy, like in a scene, but like, they're so funny together. Like how did we not get Steve Martin and Bill Murray? Like, you know, anchoring an entire movie together. It's just, it's really frustrating that this one dentist scene, which isn't that long, is all we get. And they're just so funny together because one of the things that Steve Martin does is he continues to add, evolve and play off each other. And Bill Murray is ad-libbing everything. The editor had a really hard time putting this together cohesively because nothing Bill Murray says was scripted. Everything that he was doing was different and he was doing it different every time. And Steve Martin's so adept and Edouard, like, like, and Adroit, that um, he could just put it all together and work with him. And when you have two geniuses just clicking on cylinders like that, if you ever watch like Whose Line Is It Anyway? And you're just in awe, like, man, these guys are so good on their toes. These guys are so, so funny. These guys have that magical thing. It's just like, just keep the camera rolling. We'll figure it out later because this is all very, very funny. I'm glad you brought up Bill Murray's improvisation, and I have a feeling that may be part of the reason why we haven't seen them together again, because it took six weeks to film that one little scene, because he was constantly just (laughs) improvising. And allegedly, too, I've read conflicting reports, so I don't know how true this is. It was his suggestion that when Oren Scrivello DDS enter in off (laughs) of the street from his motorcycle, that he sock the dental hygienist assistant in the face. Initially, he was supposed to clop her over the head with a helmet. So it's sort of, it's so almost, if, if I'm picking up what you're laying down, it's almost as if uh, we, we don't need two head chefs here. Uh, we, 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 need, we need somebody to uh, play second fiddle. And th- yeah, with two powerhouses, that might be, that might be difficult. Uh, yeah, to, especially if, gosh, that's crazy. It, it took six weeks for just that one scene. I mean, they do have some crossover in Saturday Night Live. Obviously, Steve Martin came on a number of times while Bill Murray was a cast member there. But it's just one of those things where it's just like, ah, it's not too late. Somebody call them both up and make this happen now. (laughs) A long, slow root canal. (laughs) Yes, there there definitely is room for a... uh, uh, two geriatric people in a retirement home or something like that uh, with Bill Murray and, and uh, Steve Martin. So um, Have them be the live action Statler and Waldorf. Of, uh... <laughs> I was thinking like grumpy old men. Hey, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. 
Do you think that the the masochist is uh th- like the the 1960s version had the flower eater like that weird character? Oh, yeah. I That's like that funny. character actually. Uh, it's so I, funny, so I, funny, right? It's one of my favorite parts of that 60s thing. And what Dustin's talking about for those who haven't seen it is there's this character that seems to just be like Mr. Know It All about all plant stores because he goes around all the plant stores and he's like salting and peppering plants and he orders like a dozen of like chrysanthemums and just sits there and eats them in front of people and it's really strange and funny i'm sitting there going like that that is unexpected that's one of the funniest things in the original i gotta and get oddly, home my wife's cooking gardenias for dinner yeah exactly. and oddly he was kind of like the voice of reason in that version which you would not think from a flower eater <laughs> yeah yeah he gives me the i'm just the only thing I, I'll, I'll make it brief i was just gonna say i feel like uh like you need a, a screwball you need, you, you need a real oddball, and that's what Bill Murray is in this production, whereas the flower eater is that in the first. Yeah, and there's a lot of little moments that go to bigger name actors, and I was really impressed. Like, I mean, Christopher Guest gets a tiny little, like, two-line scene. He does an amazing job with it. John Jim Belushi. Sorry, I wish John Belushi were in this, but no, we got Jim Belushi. Um, Jim Belushi uh, it gets a small role. John Candy is a very weird radio host. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> he did a good job with that. <laughs> so, I mean, there's just amazing craft. And, like, everybody must have either wanted in on this because they get some amazing casting that goes pretty deep into this. And, um, you know, I just I want to really credit them. Like, how did they get everybody so right? They had money as part of it, you know? This is, this is a $25 million production. That's actually pretty high for the movie of this time. So it's yeah, it's 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 something to say, like, how did they get it right? Well, by by not picking Madonna. Right. But by by not or or, 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 like the the targeting like works out like I think we do this a lot of the times on the show is like, what do you think about if it were uh, instead of Nicole Kidman, if it was uh, Reese Witherspoon or something like that? and there is kind of a bias. Like once you've seen something in its form, it is then doubly as difficult to ever imagine oh, no, somebody there, else in it. There's one of those two here of uh, Eddie Murphy was considered instead of for the voice of Audrey too, instead of uh, oh. um, what was his name? Levi Stubbs. Levi Stubbs. Levi, Levi Stubbs. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just like Levi Stubbs was so perfect. I actually wouldn't put Eddie Murphy in there now, and I love Eddie Murphy so. Although right. I get at the time why you would have said, like, what if we got Eddie Murphy? I'd be like, uh, yeah. Well, and Vincent Gardenia only got that role because his last name uh, stands for Flower Shop in Italian. He's good, too. <laughs> he is good. I love his, his like, throaty, like, the way he says things. Seymour, an axe murderer. Like, his, his, his uh, throaty, like, uh, addiction is is fun everybody sounds so great in this movie everybody has a distinct sound and you know even even like not just when they're singing but just talking to one another what you said when christopher guest comes in he comes in uh like like incredibly boldly like one note wow what an strange and interesting plant like like it's 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 exactly that for the whole time while i'm here better get 12 dozen roads like everybody has such a unique sound to this i i you, you could honestly say anything about this movie and i would then like oh let's let's talk about how amazing that is it's it's it's, it's great so this movie has one of the very large it takes a very large sound stage and 
It is made for $25 million, as I mentioned. That even surpasses Alien, which was a 1986 movie that we've also covered. Check out that episode. It's a very good one that we did. But um, this budget was really large. It was shot in the Pinewood Studios and I believe at the 007 lot where... So this is 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 a big production and a lot of craft went into this. The set was very elaborate and obviously the amount of puppetry that went into this was so over the top. DJ, did you get to enjoy any of the what it took to make this? Oh my gosh, every moment of it. This the sets are exceptionally beautiful and the the shots to like from your one point perspectives to your two point perspectives to kind of like the layering you see and the kind of the depth in the scenes. And again, it's you know, it is a set. It's not a real city. It feels like a real city. Like they even have a model kind of subway kind of running in the background to simulate what New York City may look like. Um, and I thought it was just beautiful and brilliantly done. I think that it also, it felt like the city, but it also felt like a set at the same time. And it walks the line. I keep talking about walking the line, but I mean, it does. Different movie. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it there's something almost, I would say Tim Burton, that's hyper reality to it. It's so terrible and dark and dismal and, and terrible that, yes, we all know that the slums of New York were particularly not nice uh, as White Flight was ev- evacuating the city. And this just wasn't a very nice place to live anymore. But they they amp it up and they show you every little puddle he's stepping into and it becomes a character. And it is because that they've added enough layering and detail into that much like a stage performance would do but because it's on camera and you're up to it and you're panning around you're moving around it they took it to a whole nother level so the set design has a lot of character in it that i think if you literally just shot on location it wouldn't have this hyper dismal thing that is a character like skid row the people are so unhappy in the way that it's shot and stuff i live here because i have to live here (laughs) yeah i don't want to be here yeah this is the other interesting thing that varies between the 1960s version and the 1986 version, because in the 60s version, it is very clearly set in Los Angeles. And Skid Row is an actual neighborhood in L.A., right. which we then get the song from, you know. And so it's to kind of transpose this back to New York City is a very kind of interesting leap, um, which I appreciate. And I think it, it is beautiful and it, it kind of it panned out in the end, basically. L.A. is still beautiful all the time, Uh, whereas New York can be grimier and grosser. Um, Think about the colors of um, Seymour's, like, sweater vest. Like, gray, maybe dark blue, some, like, khaki. Like, everything outside is is grays and browns and wet. It looks like it just rained, or if it didn't rain, it's humid. The cobblestones are, are you know, just a dark color. Um, And then you do get a stark contrast, like when you get into the bright white dentist's office or lobby, uh, or you get the contrast of the incredible uh, cutaway to the matchbox in the suburbs, uh, you know, somewhere that's green, which which is like almost a relief for your eyes, right? You ever feel like when you're watching a movie, like your brain is in a mode, and sometimes like you, you need like your brain to blink, like your eyes need to blink, sometimes your brain needs to blink. Um, I found the thing that was the, the the movie that I needed the most blinks in was a uh, Birdman, 
Remember how in in oh, Birdman, yeah. you, you it's a it's shot it's as if shot. it's continual, right? So because of that, your brain never stops working. And so what you do is with, with this movie, you get little glimpses towards the the um, you know the future with the 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 two little kids, um, in, you know, in in the suburbs and the Tupperware party. I believe you even get a cartoon bird flying in there. You do, um, yeah. Uh, I remember asking my mom, what is that? And my mom remembers doing Tupperware party, parties with her mom, with my mama. Like, oh, this is what you do. You, you'd get women over and you'd sell this or that. Like, uh, very much like early multi-level marketing. And it was a thing you do in the suburbs. Uh, or, but, but uh, and then, the, you know, the dentist's office. Um, and then I think even, like, the radio station gives you just a little bit of a break from, oh, man, it's just dark and grimy here all the time. It's a lot of it shot at night. And, and it's also purposefully done because you take that same alleyway with the fire escapes uh, from West Side Story and it's brightly lit and beautiful and shining white teeth. And, but that same place in this movie is dark and there's a closed uh, gate and there are people climbing up it, you know, saying that, you know, uh, downtown there's no room for us because we're dangerous. Like, like it's, it's a scary seeming place. God, you can get me talking about this movie for a three-hour podcast. I need to shut up. I mean, it's one of those amazing things that they also got right is in the set pieces. You mentioned the other thing I want to mention that very, very Tim Burton-like, and I saw it Edward Scissorhands on this, was the Somewhere It's Green number. Like, the Better Homes and Gardens suburban reality that they created really had this, like, it's it's super real. Like, the grass is astroturf. The colors are hyper bright and everything is just really overdone and again that's a stylistic move that frank oz the director made that again played off the nostalgia and the contrast and the juxtaposition of skid row versus this somewhere that's green reality and it's just really really i mean i think the camera works better than this movie necessarily was expecting it to be or what you would expect for it i should say and um the set design is very good it's obvious that it is well-funded, but they use their money very wisely, I think. And sometimes you'll have a missing piece of, uh, like, like, uh, like if this store exists, if this storefront exists, it should have a back room. This one does. It should have a cellar at a place where deliveries come. It has that. Uh, like, if, if, if you're missing something, like, in the dentist's office, you should have a waiting room, a receptionist's desk. You should have his shrine to his mother. Obviously, every dentist's office needs the shrine to your mother. I like that it's an old man, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mama. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, and like you mentioned, the subway um, going off in the back. Or um, even in the, the alternate ending, uh, you know, for, for you, you're able to see so much of this city that seems real. Um, and I mean, I, I think I've seen it enough where I'm like, oh yeah, this is very clearly sets, but it does, it does seem real. But maybe that's, maybe I've just got the lenses on because I already know how much I love the movie. But I think like, it's it, a character. It feels I like think, it, I think, I think it's, I think it's amped yeah, up. Good point. I think it's amped up to become so much of what's there. Their, their wardrobes over the top sixties too. It's, it's more sixties than the sixties might've even been, if you know what I mean. So um, no, but Frank Oz, DJ, have you gotten to enjoy much of his work as a director? Obviously, this is Miss Piggy. This is Gonzo. And um, I just wanted to like, it's we think of Frank Oz as being more Yoda and the puppeteer. But he is actually also 
a good filmmaker. Yeah, The Dark Crystal, uh, Death at a Funeral, like, yes, countless, countless films. I do love his work. Um, I do want to change topic, though, because something I didn't know, the screenplay being by Howard Ashman, um, I have never really looked into this individual before, didn't know his name before this, but then looking back at it, he did The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and Beauty and the Beast, which were, like, really, like, culminating or pivotal films for me as a kid, basically. Um, and it makes sense now looking back at this, like, oh, I get it. Like, this, it all checks out now. So that yep. was a, a very a good surprise for me to find that out. And the composer Alan Menken, uh, the same guy from Beauty and the Beast. We actually covered Beauty and the Beast earlier this year, and Howard Ashman was so pivotal to that, as you as you mentioned. Like, he was... He's the brainchild that really did that. And then Alan Menken is the composer who works with him on Beauty and the Beast. It's funny that it's the same guys working early on together here. And these songs do have the emotional punch, as as I think DJ, or no, uh, D- Dustin had alluded to earlier. I mean, they, they, they pulls you in. And you're right. It's made by people who really know how to make a musical tell story while they're doing it, too. The, the the thing that makes me think about is with Alan Menken or with uh, what, what is Ashman Howard, Howard Ashman, Ashman yeah. you realize like hold this guy's name is attached to these four incredible movies incredible successful movies that are are timeless now it makes you think like when you when you hang on to a name like Ashman like the the name of like it's not it I don't think that's a household name I wouldn't say I wouldn't say Howard Ashman is a household name and so like. Spielberg is a household name. Scorsese is a household name. Like for me, the the one that's not a household name that like if I see that his name is attached, I'm going to give it a shot is uh, Luke Besson. Like I, that, that, uh, if if it's a Luke Besson flick, I think the last one I saw was Lucy. Well, Luke Besson is definitely yeah. He's got a fan following. He's got a fan following, but I wouldn't say it's a household name. I Com- guess. I'm a household full of movie nerds. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, you also said his name right, as opposed to me who said it. Besson. Luke Besson. Luke uh, Besson. Luke Besson. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, but, like, there are, like, now, if I ever see anything where it says, like, Howard Ashman involved, you have to know it's going to be incredible. Yes. It was so great. And another good Steve Martin movie is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels as well. And uh, he also worked again with Steve Martin on Bowfinger. And House Sitter. In fact, I've now realized Frank Oz goes back to Steve Martin a lot. Hmm. But oh, that's cool. Yeah. You, you know what, though? Like, Frank Oz was coming off the Muppets Take Manhattan. And his work with the Muppets is Star Wars that um, made him so ideal to do this. When it's funny, he kind of got the job for his puppetry uh, abilities to be able to oversee all of that. But I'll be honest with you, as Justin just pointed out, I mean, he's got a really good knack for comedy movie making in its own right. He's really good at keeping it tight, keeping it short, doing a good job and making you care about the characters because that's something that you come to like. What about Bob's very heartwarming? Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is very heartwarming. Little Shop of Horrors, you care about the characters in this. And so he has a really, really great ability. He does so many projects it's a shame he didn't get to make more movies as a director because he's got a good ability to tell a good story, make you care about the characters. But then he also comes with this unbelievable ability to have this technical expertise from his work with Jim Henson and the Muppets and Sesame Street and all of these things. I love Frank Oz. He's so cool. I mean, he's Master Yoda. Well, and the other thing is, you know, 
you said it like he would be probably be known most for his puppetry but you when you've got groups of or a brain trust of, of people that you continually work with you realize that you know you don't just have the one talent um and if you're exceptional at one thing it doesn't mean you can't be close to exceptional at something else so the idea i think uh, this makes me think of when we did our um, Monty Python and the the quest for the Holy Grail is that yes, while they are all great comedians, one of them has a better eye for direction, and another one has a better eye for scheduling, and some of them are particularly bad at other things. But uh, in this case, we get to learn like Frank Oz, aside from the puppetry, also has uh, the all the great qualities you you mentioned. D- DJ, do you like the fact that we're we have the puppets? Because I'm positive if you make this movie. You know, twenty years later, everything's going to be CGI. Do you like when this movie's made, and that's a little capsule of puppeteering at a high level? Yeah, it's 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 hard to imagine this as CGI, and I don't know that I want to see it as such, considering that you know early CGI kind of has not held up as well through time, mm-hmm. and this is still very convincing. One little trick I learned is that um, they actually had to film uh, the plant talking at uh, slower frames per second and speed it up to make it look more believable, um, which is pretty interesting. So yeah, but, Moranis yeah. had to actually act or lip sync his lines slow, right? That's amazing. I mean, it looks so convincing and that doesn't show at all. Even when I read that very thing that you're mentioning, I was kind of going back for it. It does not suffer for that at all. In fact, if you really start to pay attention to the Audrey too and how it moves, it's lips and how it moves every little piece of it there's so much attention for every syllable that it's saying that's why they're doing it so that they can craft all of those fine little motions and stuff like that and that attention to detail and you know obviously taking more time on the set that's really impressive and creative too for coming up with that solution yeah it's very articulate and it's crazy to look at all the the small little movements in just the mouth alone to make it kind of a a convincing kind of portrayal yeah even yeah even when it's small uh I, when he's in wink winkleman's office or uh studio and the the little audrey too is looking at uh, i think it's uh, i don't know his reception for something is bending over and her derriere is in the air and, and she's the, wearing a red dress and and, and uh the, the the little the little tiny audrey too gives like this sort of like oh my god look at this <laughs> and it's like, this is just a mouth with no eyes that you've barely seen move yet. But like, it kind of like, oh, ooh, and then looks up at, at, um, at Seymour to see if he's looking and he's not. And so like, then you can see like the plant gets mischievous, even though all you're seeing is the difference of angles of a flat mouth and somehow the puppetry works. Uh, of course, I don't know if I've said it on this podcast, but the people that know me closest know I'm, I'm a gigantic Muppet fan and always loved everything that they've done. I would say Muppets Take Manhattan is down on my list, but uh, you know, you, you include you include just this awesome... I mean, he's uh, involved work. with anything Muppets. Like I said, uh, he's he's always involved, so it's not... That's just what he was coming off of for the direction on this one, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's 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 the, the Henson Muppet Workshop is behind it, perhaps. I don't know. That gets off the top of my head, but... Um, yeah, it's it's just it's just done differently, and it's and it's done so well. I, I'm I'm with you, DJ. I wouldn't see this if it were CGI. It's not the same. So we talked about the set design and the puppeteering and all that stuff, but I mean, it, it extends into the wardrobe too. DJ, 
what is it that uh, like this the, this wardrobe is adding to that nostalgic feel, right? Hundred percent. Yeah. Like you know, Audrey, she has very good attire from her cheap and tawdry fashion <laughs> to her better homes and gardens fashion. But also, I want to give a shout out to the Greek chorus who they go from like a kind of a 180 from being like background kind of characters in the city, kind of inner city people to like wearing these beautiful dresses and this just kind of beautiful wardrobe, hair, makeup, heels, gloves. Um, I particularly like in the doo-wop one uh, about the eclipse, uh, the kind of Indo-Western kind of inspired collar dresses that they're wearing, like these green, the green mm-hmm. silk dresses. Beautiful. And they don't get rained on either. I think that was. They don't. That's it's a. I think that's a tricky thing. Everything else is pouring around them, but somehow I guess they have a foam disc or something up above them. I, I'm not. I actually didn't read how they did this, but I did notice it was like they're dry. Music is magical in ways yeah. that we truly don't understand. Uh, I, I totally, I, tr- I totally uh, second what what DJ said about about uh, the the three girls uh, run it. Chiffon and, and, and Crystal. Uh, uh, my, my favorite of theirs is, is of theirs is um <clears throat> is their their like matching gloves with their sequin dresses during supper time. Um, yes. They're they're just so glam and so exactly what you want out of this group. Um, and so much so that they're actually given like a little scene where there's actually nothing going on in the plot uh, during I think it is uh, some fun now. There, there's some time when we're like, all right, we're advancing the plot a little bit. And now we're just going to watch these three girls dance on the rooftop for like 45 seconds. And it's like, all right, give them a little bit of their due. Like this, give them some screen time. Like they're, they're awesome. just dancing and having fun. And it's like th- this, like that's kind of all you need of it. But give give them, they have a little bit of dialogue, but then, then they show up to do their job, which is to be backing vocals and they knock it out of the park. I'm glad they got that screen time. So DJ, I'm, what? Oh, good. I said I'm glad you mentioned supper time because the brilliance of that shot is like you see the gloves first coming out of the alley, just like sparkling, and then you see oh, yeah. them kind of appear out of the shadows. Beautiful. They're leaning in, like, is this about to happen? Oh mm-hmm. my gosh! Yeah. So soundtrack, this is going to be hard to do. DJ, what are some of the key musical numbers that you just love, for, as far as the songs go? Okay, I mean, quick take, and I might regret this later. We'll see. My favorite song is Skid Row, a.k.a. Downtown. The mm-hmm. next number two is going to be Suddenly Seymour, because yeah. that one makes me cry every damn time. It's it's a classic. That's what I think you think of when you think of this movie, for sure. I mean, it's that moment in the movie where they realize that they can be together. Obviously, you yes, had to kill her. I was going to say, obviously, you had to feed her boyfriend to a plant to make that happen. But yeah. He did look like plant food to me. Um, mm-hmm. um, but by the way, that scene's got a lot of great camera work going on in it, too. And uh, it's just a really powerful, like I said, Ashman makes you care about, <laughs> he really makes you care about these characters. And so, yeah, it's, that's a heartfelt scene. Dustin, what about you? What, what are some of the songs that you like? Uh, got got to go with DJ. Uh, Skid Row is the, oh, another one that, uh, as an ensemble kind of song, is, is great. The movie version and the, and the album version are a little different. I like them both. Um, uh, supper time is great. I think the the baseline in supper time is really good, and and you get uh, there's a menacing to that particular song. 
um, he it, 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 it almost as if like you know think of um, um, somebody whispering you to do the wrong thing. He's he's whispering all the things that you can get. Like he's he's has the power there. Uh, I think that that's a great one. Um, and then I will I will add on uh, aside from aside from uh, suddenly Seymour. Uh, I'll go ahead and put that like I while I love everyone I will just go ahead because I because I do love everyone I would say that like the the meek shall inherit is maybe like the furthest down my list it's hard to say there's the worst song I think this one suffered because to be there they were gonna make that more ambitious it's actually trimmed down and they had some really cool trippy things that they did with it but then they cut a lot of them out it's basically Seymour kind of becoming consumed in this world and uh, I wish they hadn't cut that out. We're talking, we're talking like sixty seconds, maybe or forty well, seconds. Yeah. Um, well, imagine if those changes, like you're talking about, like sixty seconds here, sixty seconds there, adding a song, you know, the different ending. Some of the changes um, really, really would affect like making this movie even better than it already is. I was gonna say, I think they should have kept that in. It would have been expensive and like trippy, but I mean, I like it. I wish they'd done it. Like you can see if you YouTube it, you can see where they cut that part of it out so uh question of merit would definitely be one of the ones that would have been better there's four songs that didn't make it from the off-broadway performance there's clothes for renovation mushnik and son and now it's just the gas and call back in the morning were all cut out but they did add in so mean green mother from outer space was new and written for the song yeah best uh, original song yeah yeah well, it, didn't so win, it didn't win but it was nominated but um to your point dustin I don't know if you've ever gone back and listened. Have either of you guys gone back and listened to these four cut that got cut out of here? I did, yeah. Good cuts, it's bad cuts? me. I don't know them. Hmm. I agree with Dustin's sentiment about the meat shall inherit the earth because it starts off really strong and then it just doesn't deliver in the end and I wish it would have been amped up a little bit more. I think it cut a verse and a chorus off and it evolves into another song while it does that. Like I said, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a twisty song and it goes into this like Alice in Wonderworld, like as like Seymour's thinking internally to himself and like these plants are like literally having vines that wrap him up and he's like sees Mushnik's face and blood's running down the painting of, of his face and stuff like that. It's symbolic, it's artistic, it's ambitious in a way that a lot of the rest of this movie might not have done tonally. It might have been different, but it's so good because it's internal to his dreamlike state. Wish they'd kept it. So, um, it is fun to think about like what this movie could be, and I think all the changes we are proposing, um, or keep do, them, <laughs> do more. <laughs> like, like let let's go for it, right? Let's 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 a little another twenty five million. We'll 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 get to work on it. Yeah. All right. So, do you guys want to hand out some awards? Yeah, let's do it. Oh yeah, my favorite time. DJ, give us the honor. Who is your MVP of Little Shop of Horrors? Obviously, in case you haven't already guessed it, it's going to be Ellen Green. All right. Yes, and uh, she she's amazing. She's my pick as well. Definitely. Dustin, what about you? Are you going to be different? Uh, I am going to be different. I'm going to go with, uh, like, I think Rick Moranis shows some range I didn't uh, anticipate. Um, and and I think he, his, his character uh, is, I, I often ask on this podcast, maybe every time I'm on, who are we rooting for or why are we rooting for them? And that's, there's no question here. You really want to see him succeed. Um, but it's, it's Rick Moranis as Seymour, not just the character Seymour. I, I love him. 
Nope, that's a great choice there. And I could have easily gone with Morantz. And honestly, I could have gone with Frank Oz because I just taking and adapting this off-Broadway play to screen so well and I think giving us the best version of it. He did a great job there. So, um, But Ellen Green is just so good. Her vocals are top-notch and she creates this amazingly over-the-top character that I don't think anybody could reproduce. So, best supporting... DJ. Supporting Greek Chorus. They do make this so much better. And every turn of the way, they, their vocals are so good. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did, I dig that kind of Supremes um, uh, portrayal as well. It's, that's a great call. They, I somehow didn't even remember them because it's been so long since I had seen this movie. And now I'm sitting there going like, man, how could I ever forget? They're so they're so important to what makes the ingredients of this work. Yeah, that's a good that's a good choice for supporting because like it's not about their dialogue. It's about their presence. Justin, what about you? Uh, it's Ellen Green. Uh, I, I honestly uh, Rick Moranis and Ellen Green were one A and one B, but one of them is clearly not a supporting like neither 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 of them are really supporting actors they're both leads so i just had to find a place to put both their names but she's incredible and we all know i'm gonna go with steve martin on this one he just is so over the top and wild like i said uh, if he was the first thing i saw when i first stumbled across this movie and that's what hooked me so i think that that goes a long way he's not in it a ton i mean he's in it a fair bit but i mean Boy, what a great character for him. Uh, Hidden Jim, DJ. I put the dental assistant. I think the physical <laughs> comedy she has to endure is so wonderful. <laughs> it's always get... fun to see a fist go forward with no resistance and just <laughs> the, full, the full knockout. <laughs> it is good. That's good slapstick for sure. Dustin, what about you with Best Hidden Jim? My hidden gem is actually also during dentist. Uh, it's um, there's several different patients. He's going between different rooms, and one of the rooms uh, he's just uh, he's twisting a tooth from a little boy, and right before he pulls the tooth out, like right before, and there's like a break in the music. He looks at the screen, like like I'm about to do this, aren't I? Yank, like he just very short. He like breaks the fourth wall a little bit, like oh I'm gonna savor this, and then he yanks it out from that kid. I thought you were about to go head headgear set uh, when, when someone comes out with no ability to talk anymore. And Bill Murray's like, oh, you should consider yourself very lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah they have, they to, have to do that to remove the jaw. The, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all so old hat to him. Oh, yeah, they have to do that. Yeah, he referred me from a guy on, on Tuesday who I actually was referred to from a guy from Monday. Everything about those dentist scenes is so good. Oh, uh, my hidden gem is going to be Christopher Guest. He doesn't have very many lines, but boy, his facial, his face just looks like it was a, sent like with several volts of electricity. Just like he's so <laughs> stiff, rigid, wide eyed and so like a 1950s infomercial. And uh, he lays it on so thick. when He's just like, say, while I'm here, why don't I buy $50 worth of roses? <laughs> it's like $50. I only have 100. Can you break it? No. Then I'll have well, to buy I'll twice guess as many. Two does it? Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> He's just so hammy, and I love it. Um, recast, very hard to do. One of the hardest times I've ever had to do it for this entire podcast, but it's got to be done. DJ, who are you recasting, and who are you putting in their place? So I 
I did recast Ellen Green's character, but only because I've been watching a lot of um, MJ Rodriguez from Pose fame perform Suddenly Seymour, and I kind of want to see that now. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I I have to look that up. I didn't see that. So, Dustin, what about you? Recast. I want to ask: Is is um is this M- this MJ Rodriguez uh, POC? Uh, yes. And that's maybe something that will, because we do have some like Jewish, like Yiddish type humor, but it's a very white cast, uh, aside from the voice. But you don't know uh, the voice of you know um, Audrey too. But like that, that's something that we can. Whenever we look at some of these retro movies, we realize that like here's another all white cast, or like with with West Side Story, it was like here's a white woman wearing brown face. Like we see that a lot. So yeah. uh, I, I would, I'm totally on board with that. Uh, my recast is, um, and once again, very difficult is uh, Mel Brooks as Mushnick. Um, I think oh, he would, good. he would eat up those little quick uh, jokes. Um, and I think it also give him a chance because Mushnick has to ha- be the, be um, a moral voice and he has to struggle with the idea. Like, do I confront him in the 1960s version? He thinks about going to the police. He ends up not doing it. Um, and he's got to be a little sleazy. I think it works out perfectly. We would just have to have Mel Brooks eventually turn the knob down. And I don't know who does that. Maybe Frank Oz is the guy that can say, Mel, chill out and just do a scene seriously for once. Wow, yeah. That, I think it's going to be a very different portrayal of the character, but I'm, I'm intrigued by that. That's very intriguing. I cheated. I went super deep into the cast. And the news reporter who's frustrated in the, in the plant shop, I thought, what if this is Dan Aykroyd? <laughs> Like he's so good at like doing like this like like news type guy like on the screen like I could see him getting off the camera and being pushy with like hey make the plant better like and being impatient with him. Obviously, you'd have to give him a little more screen time, but in the same way that John Candy's role was insignificant, like John Candy, they wanted him to be Mushnick, but he just didn't have time. And he's just like, I really would like to do this. Is there something small you can give me? I'd like to I'd like to do the same thing for Dan Aykroyd and just like give him a piece of this and see what would happen if yeah. you throw it to another yet another comedic powerhouse. Oh, see, that's so weird because I don't like John Candy as Mushnick. I like him as Wink. Well, that's well. That, yeah. Be, gl- be glad he was too busy to take on Mushnick. Oh, I'm already glad. You can tell it's been an hour and a half, and I've been smiling the whole time. Yeah. Um. So the best scene, sorry, best shot, DJ. Because there's actually some good camera work, as we mentioned in here. Yeah, so best shots, plural for me, is the entire song of Downtown slash Skid Row. There are some great transitions and stuff like that. Even the beginning, like right off the bat, that old woman coming up the alley. Um, One that point was... perspective, she's belting it out. Um, I also love, like, there's, it's a very small shot, but it's like when you see the ensemble cast, like, walking on the street and they do a close-up of their feet stepping up on the curb. And it's just like this they're forming a single-file line. And it really just emphasizes the dejected nature of the setting and, like, the... Camera's on a track during that, too. Like, like it's it's moving through... Like, like it's not just them walking up. Like, it's moving as well. I, I know it very clearly, yeah. And that old woman uh, who started singing there, she was... This was one of her last performances. She dies not too far after this, but this is... Uh, Beatrice reading she's a Tony winning uh, singer so you're you're right she can she can certainly build it so I considered her for my hidden gems just such a good group of people here yeah best shot Dustin 
It is during supper time, and I think DJs saying like when you when you see them emerge from the shadow, that's that's one of that th- those shots. But mine is when you see their kind of glittery pumps walking across the street, like in front of the camera, low shot, and they are they're walking in front of the, and all you see are their shoes and their calves. Uh, I I love that because the focus is on like seeing the. Uh, Audrey too, and Seymour like through the window, and then you're also seeing it through their their legs as they're walking across. I loved that shot. Something is threatening about that too. Like yeah, the, like like the click clack of the heels. Yeah, them walking towards it, plus the music building its tension is like something's coming. So, um, my best shot is going to be it's in suddenly Seymour. Uh, the the camera turns around. There's they're in this burned out basement, if you will. So it's an open to the air like set of burned down ruins. And there's a shot. There's a brick wall that has crumbled in the middle and it's framing Seymour and uh, Audrey as they are facing each other and they're about to come together. So they both have sung a verse on their own and now they're starting to sing together. And so they're looking at each other and the camera kind of zooms in and it changes height as well and it kind of moves up in kind of this hopeful manner it just captures the the song so well it captures the it uses the set that they had built really well and um it's a lot like the things that dj was mentioning is like this stuff's littered with this but perhaps it was this climax of emotions that did it for me but um yeah nobody mentioned the somewhere that's green shot uh when they zoom out of her dreamlike quality they had to use a series of cranes and because they were using the largest sound studio and in use at the time they had to like zoom back cut zoom back cut and then go to an even larger crane and then zoom back some more so and they found an animated bird that they you know i don't know how much they paid the animal wrangler but they were able to get one of those really colorful birds in you had an you had one of those birds over your shoulder there yourself dustin earlier <laughs> here in my around... in my beautiful hill country office yes it was, yeah, it was actually that... on from nine to five from the poisoning <laughs> <laughs> all right best wardrobe or makeup moment dj i have a feeling audrey's gonna get this for you but what part she is yeah so she in particular she's wearing at a red dress after the flower shop becomes successful yeah. and Seymour have forgotten a ra- an arrangement. He rushes in, tells, explains to Audrey what he needs. And she's like running through birthday, like something, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no funeral. And she's like, Oh, get me the, the lilies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need some glitter. I'm going to yeah. need some glitter. Blow. All right. D- uh, Dustin. Best wardrobe or makeup moment? Of course, I always give a worst and a best. The worst is when she says my arm's in a cast and it's just like a piece of lace. Um, I mean, it's funny, but it's that's not a cast. Uh, and then the, the, the best is uh, the dentist's leather outfit. He's wearing leather pants, and I believe his like uh, doctor's coat is somehow some type of white pleather as well. And I like that it's short-sleeved. Um, I, that's, it's just such a great look. Um, more so than his like black leather jacket is the his like his operating outfit. I'm with you, Doctor Scrivello's dental slash pharmacy jacket, where the buttons are all asymmetrically done on one side. Yeah, and then uh, it's contrasted by his super black hair and vinyl apron. It's like that, an M. That Bison he has was on. a dentist. Yeah, and his black <laughs> hair. So you have this very white scene, and it seems off-putting because it is so stark and sterile and stuff like that. So 
the black that he's wearing pops a lot and seems more threatening. Yeah. So um, it's really good use of color or lack of color, I guess, in this case. But um, it's it's great. And obviously, Steve Martin doing everything he's doing is just over the top. To even think that a dentist would be this motorcycle gang guy coming in off the streets and then immediately walking into a dentist's office. It's, it's very funny. So um, change one thing. DJ. I didn't fill this out because I can't. I really can't. Oh, it's, no. it's pretty difficult. Get him, Russell. Tell him he has to. Oh no, no, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, you know, let's help. We'll, maybe it's eat somebody else. Maybe it's uh, add, add a music number back in. Come on, yeah, man. Yeah, let's think about this. What what is what is it your favorite thing? And then do it again. I'll go first is to give him some time to think of one. Yeah. All right. So my mine is um, I, I don't. I don't dig like the way that Audrey too was toying with Seymour at the end. Uh, we know that he can grow these tendrils so quickly. Like, wait, it, you don't it, like him shooting the revolver at him? No, that not the revolver's funny. But I just I think there's this is the only part of the movie where things not they don't drag. They're just like a little too long. Um, they want to have the the little mouths singing the uh, climbing like notes and chords, and it happens too much. And it particularly happens in the alternate ending, but. Um, like that that's a great song but we know that this movie can do like ominous music we know that it can climb and we know that it can do scary dangerous sounding music and this this particular song is like a jaunty type of song so i would say that we need to like shorten that out and and if we're going to do it to where seymour gets eaten let's let's wrap it up and do it faster because it just man leonard Leonard molten when Leonard Maltin would not like that. He was upset that this movie, uh, I think he only gave it one and a half stars. Uh, he, he said that uh, the plant is too mean. He said it starts out fun, <laughs> but when the plant is too mean, it stops being fun. And he rated the 1961 higher. And I said, uh, ah, yeah. being a wet blanket, Leonard Maltin. Everybody's wrong once in a while. All right, DJ, what's your change one thing? <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, this is easy. I would say add some more songs back in, but hey. it's yeah. a cop out. Yeah, I think I think we've an answer. I think I've said add that back in so many times because Frank Oz didn't do anything wrong, so that's a pretty good safe answer. It's a short movie, so there's definitely room for it. Um, I think a dream-like sequence of all of the plant taking over and keeping some of that mayhem is is mine. I kind of tipped my hand earlier. It's just like I think they literally threw out five million dollars worth of work. I don't have the exact number right right in front of me, but I do remember seeing. I was like. It is a significant percentage of the budget that just got tossed in the garbage. And I'm glad they went with the ending they did because it's it's happy. I like happy endings. But um, I do kind of enjoy seeing the plants go on a rampage. <laughs> so It is fun. It's cool. It's cool. Yeah. All right. Best quote, DJ. This isn't really a quote, but when Seymour reveals the name of the plant to Mr. Mushnick and Audrey. There's like a slight pause. Yep, and I know exactly Audrey, what like, you mean. It's like does this cute little squeak <laughs> that I, is so funny. Like it's so like well-timed and delivered. I just love it so much. My mom laughed out loud when she did that. So <laughs> uh, D- Dustin, how about you, man? Oh, What's your man, best quote? I wrote, I wrote so many, uh, but I'm going to go with uh, Audrey's explaining why she's late. And uh, Mushnick says, uh, uh, don't tell me. You got tied up? And she goes, no, just handcuffed a little. <laughs> I, I really liked it when he said, uh, I'm starting to think that nice boy is not such a nice boy. 
Which he, Vincent Gardian delivers that so well. Mine's going to be a line out of the song when uh, Rick Moranis gets mad at seeing Steve Martin's character, uh, Dr. Scavello, like hitting Audrey. And uh, they he, they turn and the music turns up and they go, the guy sure looks like plant food to me. And uh, I, I just like that line of just yeah. like, all right, it's on. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. Off the top of my head. If you want a rationale, it isn't very hard to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop and think it over, pal. The guy sure looks like plant food to me. So good. So good. All right. We've come full circle. And on a scale of zero, sorry, uh, 0.5 to five stars, five star scale, half star intervals. DJ, what would you rate Little Shop of Horrors? We're going to clock in at a 5.0. All right. And uh, I, I detected that might be the case. Whenever you have a hard time changing one thing, that's a good sign you've got a five star on your hands. And... Um, it seems so in your wheelhouse. I'm now going to be looking for other things that take those nostalgia, like 60s nostalgic movie uh, music, plus B-movies from the mid-century kind of horror things like you had with Rocky Horror Picture Show, and then add in music. So I don't know if anything else does this, but I, I'm, I'm detecting now there's a sweet spot for, for you. That's the spot. That's it right there. <laughs> that's it. And unlike Rocky Horror Picture Show, this makes sense all the way to the very end. <laughs> um. uh, Dustin, what about you, man? Five-star scale. Yeah, who needs the scale? It's a 5-0, man. It's it's absolutely five stars. Uh, I've never given as emphatic of a five-star. There's no fault. There's no fault. The the only thing is, can there be more? Right? If if the only thing is, wish we could have that back, or could there be more, or what could we pick up off the editing room floor— uh, when you when you when you type the movie uh, title into YouTube and every available clip is already watched, like it's 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 great. It's it, if I could give it higher than five, I would. Um, I went in thinking I was like, this is probably a really solid four star, maybe with the potential to come back and go four point five. But uh, I am also with you guys. I'm sitting there going like, a how have I not paid a ticket to go see this in real life, like to see a, a performance of this. B, the music in this is better than I thought it was. And C, the, the comedic performances are really good. And it's made beautifully well. And I'm sitting there going like, wow, I, this is actually one of my favorite musicals and comedies, uh, certainly in the film version that I can think of. And I didn't realize it. So it's a sneaky five, if there is such a thing. So I didn't see this one coming. And sometimes I kind of just rank the movies as we go through that throughout the year. But... Uh, after I went and watched this one the first time, I just bumped it up. And I was like, wow, this is much, much better than I somehow remembered it being. And uh, I intend to tell more people about it and recommend it to everybody now. So I'm, it's going to be a straight fives this week. I'm going to ask you guys, though, this in the world where everything gets remade, redone, would you, how would you feel if here we are in the 2020s, someone said, we need to remake a movie version of Little Shop of Horrors. Yes or no, DJ? I would say yes, and let's get a more diverse cast. I'm okay with it as long as that is what they do. Okay, okay. And Dustin? Um, there's there's two answers. If they're talking about redoing the movie, no. If they're talking about turning it into a beloved children's cartoon with several episodes a la Beetlejuice, then yes. You actually have that already. Did you know? Uh, no, I didn't know that. There, There is a Saturday morning cartoon 
for Little Shop of Horrors. The plant doesn't actually eat anybody because they make it more friendly for kids, but it has a talking Venus flytrap companion in there. So yes, yeah, you've, you've yeah. So got... let's, let's so let's do that in 2022 and have Drake be the the plant <laughs> or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm okay with doing it again for the standpoint that plays get redone and revitalized all the time. I do want to keep it in the nostalgic 60s piece, and I'm pretty concerned what's going to happen when you CGI everything. Um, so you're going to have to be really ambitious. You're going to have to do enough with it that it doesn't turn into, like, cats. So you really have to... You have a tall order ahead of you, basically, to remake it. But because... It's always fun to see different people singing really well in these roles. Um, I'm, I'm open to it. However, I'm skeptical that I, I would like it as much as this one. So I'm going to say, sure, go ahead, remake it. Because part of the magic of that is it introduces another generation or two to it where they then go back and watch this one and then say, oh, this one's really good, too. So um, I don't know that you're going to top this one, though. Dustin, you want to help me pick a movie for next time? All right, it's a spooky time of the year, and we're going to get some movies that might not necessarily have come across your plate as being mainstream horror movies. These are on the newer side. So we're going to have Cabin Fever from 2002. Five college graduates rent a cabin in the woods and begin to fall victim to a horrifying flesh-eating virus which attracts the unwanted attention of homicidal locals. Option two, The Loved Ones from 2009. When Brent turns down his classmate Lola's invitation to prom, she concocts a wildly violent plan for revenge. And option three, My Little Eye from 2002, five people are offered $1 million to spend six months together in an isolated mansion with cameras watching their every move. Let's do option two, The Loved Ones. All right. It'll make you think twice again before turning down somebody for the dance. I'll tell you that ahead of time. So, uh, All right, DJ, thank you so much, man. Yeah, thank you all so much. This is great. To all the lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, thank you. We want you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions you make will go towards making the show better. And as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin? Charge them for the lice. Extra for the mice. 2% for looking in the mirror twice. Here a little slice. There a little cut. 3% for sleeping with the window shut. <laughs>